We're starting a new series today called Prayer and Worship. And we're going to get there in just a second. Let me kind of maneuver us there by talking about uh, kind of the day on the calendar. I don't know if you know this or not. I don't know if you're aware of it or not. But today is February 14th. And today is Valentine's Day. Everybody, y'all know that, right? Good. Hopefully I didn't hear any, what? All right, you're there. Okay, here's the thing that I found interesting. Americans will spend $19 billion on Valentine's Day this year. Now, I did the math for you real quickly. Here's a graph. We'll get to that in just a second. But it's somewhere around $142 per person. Some of you are like, "Uh uh-oh, not good. All right. Now, here's an interesting thing I want to show you. This, I know y'all, y'all are like, yes, graphs. We love them. All right. So here's the, uh, this is average spending in 2009. It's in the middle of the recession. Notice everything kind of bumped down. But this is average spending. Yeah, and I don't know if you can see that, but what's the blue line? What's the blue line? That's the men, right? What's the pink line down here? Women, right? And you're like, women are like, exactly. What do you think Valentine's Day is for? So the average man this year will spend, this is 2015. These are projections for 2016. They expect love to go up here. Um, $191 per person, right? Ben, is that what you spent? All right, good. $191 per man. Now, here's the reason they say this. This is kind of interesting. There are two primary reasons men spend more. First of all is they're competitive about it. Now, I know that's shocking that men are competitive, but that they are attempting to get something better than the next guy they know. All right. The second reason is they don't remember and they have to make up for it at the last minute. If you want to have some fun this afternoon, like just go to Publix. Now, it'll be different because everybody will get their bread and milk today, too. But if you go to Publix... And you just stand in the card aisle and you'll notice it will be filled with men who are like, I forgot. Like, if you really want to have fun on most normal Valentine's Day, go about 730 in the morning to a Publix and just watch the aisle. All right. Some of you guys are like, I have a new thing on my I got to go buy. All right. But here's the thing. I also found this interesting. All right. So that's the average spending of per person. Here it is by age group. So. So this is interesting to me, all right? So the group that spends the most money on Valentine's is the group that don't have it, right? To just use good English there. It's the millennials, $234 per person. Millennials, right? Uh, uh, my age group, Gen Xers, we're, we're not much better, 187. But here's what you notice, all right? The older you get... The less you spend, right? So you guys are like, yes, we're moving into this age. I can spend less than a hundred bucks. That's awesome. All right. Now, here's a couple of reasons for that. These are families mainly. So this is includes their spend on kids. By the time your kids are like 20, you're like, I'm not spending, I'm not buying them anything. All right. And so that happens. But also, and I really do believe this. All right. In the first service, I kind of make fun about this, but I really do believe this. Do you know the reason that older people spend less than younger people when it comes to Valentine's Day? Wisdom. Right. Because they realize by this point in their relationship, it doesn't matter how many balloons they got in the bouquet. Right. That there are more important things to a relationship than the Valentine's Day gift. And the older you get, hopefully you're becoming better 
at the day-to-day function of a relationship. And you don't have to worry about going all out on one day to prove your love. It also shows me, which is interesting, just because you spend the most money and do the most stuff and have the most outward appearance of celebrating the day doesn't mean you truly understand what it's all about. Because here's what I can tell you, okay? In my experience of, of pastoring and walking through couples through premar- premarital stuff all the way through um, couples that are doing their 50, 60, we've got couples in this church that are in 70 plus years of marriage. What I've discovered is that those in the 50 years of marriage know a whole lot more about it and how to do it well than those in year two. That, that doesn't take brain science, right? Y'all realize that. Now, some of you are like, we've been married two years. We got it not. That's not true. Okay? And so as we think about that, here's the reason we're doing all that. Here's because to make the transition of where we're going. We're going to talk today about um, these concepts of prayer and worship. And, and that seems kind of strange to talk about Valentine's Day and then you go to prayer and worship. But, but here's what we're going to talk about. I want to make sure that we're not doing outward expressions of something we know we're supposed to do without having the basis of a strong foundation underneath it. A millennial that's buying their girlfriend a $400 Valentine's gift because they are in love. Right? They may be done in two weeks. In fact, y'all know the day that relationships in the United States break up most frequently? The Tuesday before Valentine's Day. They call it Red Tuesday. Because the foundation isn't there. And here's the thing. We got a lot. We're going to look at a passage of scripture here in Revelation chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles and you haven't turned there, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at a passage of scripture where he's going to talk to him and say, Listen, you have all the outward expressions of what it's supposed to look like. But the foundation of what you're doing is gone. And we're going to talk over the next five weeks. We're going to talk about the two most basic ancient biblical practices that are important for our spiritual lives. And they, we, wanted, we wanted to do this series just in a very basic, straightforward kind of manner. So much so that you can tell we put a lot of time and effort into the title of the series. For the next five weeks, we're going to talk about prayer and worship. So we called it prayer and worship. That's what we're going to do. We want to be, uh, this is ground level kind of stuff. We want to be practical. We want to help to say, okay, here's some ways you can do that. Here's some ways you can have a better prayer life. Here's some ways that you can participate in worship and allow your heart to be pulled in worship more and do all of that. We want all of that. We're going to be very practical in nature. We're going to set the foundation. But before we even do that, I want to make sure that we don't lead you down a path of adding something else to your life that isn't based in a love for Jesus Christ. And what we see in our culture, what I see in our culture is two main problems in these two areas. And the two main problems are this. First of all, people aren't doing either one. Ken Impill, who used to be president of the seminary that I went to in Fort Worth, Texas, um, did a book on prayer. And in the book on prayer, he said that in a national poll, people that went to church every week considered themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. Of that, 25% said they never prayed. Now, let me just break something down for you out of that. First of all, that's church people admitting that. And if 25% admitted they didn't pray, 
we're going to be generous and say that 10% probably should have. And they said they never prayed. Not a little, not occasionally, but never. Now, some of that comes down to what do we do? How do we do it? I don't want to just kind of, and we'll get into all that. But that's an issue. That's a problem. And even those that are, when you ask them about their prayer life, it's very rote. It's very memorized. It's very, it's very dry. It's very bland. It's very um, me-oriented. Or even um, it's, a, it's a laundry list of medical needs for those around them. We're going to talk about what is prayer. But that's an issue in the church. A church that doesn't have power, the issue of prayer is a major issue. Secondly, in worship, it's not that, that people aren't coming to worship. It's not really, well, we have fewer people in America coming to worship, but even those that are coming to worship are missing out on the opportunity they have to meet with God on a regular basis. A.W. Tozer, writing 70 years ago, said that we can be like the church in the scriptures that says they have everything they need, but they're missing the most important thing. We have need of nothing, and yet we're missing worship. So the next few weeks, we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about worship. What does that look like? What does that act like? How does it be a part of our lives? But if you don't have the priority issue of Christ in your life settled on the front end, then we're just adding stuff to your schedule, and it doesn't matter. Look at Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, I want to tell you that we're not going to go in-depth with all of the symbolism and stuff in Revelation. Um, at some point in my ministry here, I plan to do a series on the seven churches of Revelation. We'll talk a lot more about Nicolaitans and all that kind of stuff. We're going to do a very basic overview of one church today because I think it speaks to our issue. And to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. Now, here's what you need to understand, all right? So, the, who wrote the book of Revelation? John, all right? John wrote the book of Revelation. Anybody remember where John is when he wrote the book of Revelation? He's on Patmos. Now, that's a little prison island. It was an island. You know, back in the day, they didn't. They had some prisons built, but they also, if they had really bad guys, they just put them on an island somewhere where they couldn't get away. They couldn't get out. And so uh, he's in the middle of the ocean uh, in this little, ta- little island of Patmos. It's right down here, all right? And he's going to write the book of Revelation. And what we forget sometimes or what we think sometimes is that the book of Revelation was written as a kind of a modern apocalyptic novel that's going to tell us exactly how the world is going to end. And we just have to figure the puzzle pieces out. And when we do, we'll unlock the greatest mystery ever known and we'll know exactly how the world's going to end. But that's not what Revelation was. Revelation was written to seven specific churches in the Asia Minor area that were undergoing significant persecution and wondering if they were going to make it another single day. And John writes to him and says, here is my encouragement to you from a vision that I saw from the Lord that you need to know. And it says to the angel, and here's, here's what you have to understand too. When we read that word, we immediately think like wings and flying around or babies on clouds playing harps or something like that. The word angel in the original language meant messenger. And in this case, and in all seven churches cases, it's probably meant to the pastor of the church. So I'm writing this to the pastor to read to the church. Now, just so you know, and this is just a little bit, I'll give you a little bit of Revelation stuff here. He, he writes Patmos, he's here, he's going to send it out, and as he does, the first place he's going to come to is Ephesus. What, what's the first church letter written in chapter 2? Where is it written to? Yeah, not hard. Ephesus, right? And then I want you to notice as you look, if you've got your Bibles, you can flip kind of through them open. But next will be Smyrna and then Pergamum 
and then Thyatira and then Sardis and then Philadelphia and then Laodicea. There were these trade routes that made this kind of circle. And so he's writing these letters and Ephesus is the first church that he's going to come to. And he had a personal tie to the church. He had been pastor of that church from what we can tell from history at some point. And so he has a personal knowledge of it. But he's writing this letter to them and then it's going to circulate to all seven churches. Now, here's what I want you to understand about that. When they got to Ephesus, they read the entire letter. They didn't just read their part. And so it's not like, while it is specific to Ephesus, this also applies to any church in any time, in any place. Okay? So he writes it to Ephesus. Back to verse 1. To the angel, or to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now that's significant because the imagery there is the seven stars are another symbol of the seven pastors. And the idea is that Jesus is the authority. Him who holds the seven stars is Jesus. He is our authority. He is our ruler. I am uh, uh, your pastor. I am not the authority or the ruler of this church. Jesus Christ is. And he says, in case you wonder where authority lies, it lies with him. And who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, that just means the lampstands are the churches. So he sets up the whole letter and he says this. I'm writing this to the pastor in Ephesus to be read to you. And it comes as the words of the one who is in complete authority and who knows you intimately. He says, I know your works. And for the next two verses, he's going to list their works. Nine compliments he gives them in the original language. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. How you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for not namesake. And you have not yet grown weary. Now we're going to stop there for a second. Because this tells us that it was an active, invigorated, truthful church. He's going to commend them for nine things. And you can put them kind of in a couple of categories. First of all, he says, you're doing a lot of really good stuff. And you believe all the right things. And you're enduring everything that comes your way. You're believing like there are people that have come in and tried to tell you to walk away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, to try to move away. You haven't done it. You're enduring under persecution. Now, what you have to understand is this was a time when they were literally being severely persecuted for being a Christian. Now, most people think this was written under the dominion of a guy named Domitian. And Domitian's one of the cruelest emperors that ever lived, one of the cruelest Caesars that ever lived in the Roman Empire. And he is one of the ones that would burn Christians at the stake that would, um, in fact, before John is sent to Patmos, they attempt to kill him by dipping him in burning oil. And he survives. And they can't get rid of him. They send him to Patmos. I mean, this is a terrible guy. This was the kind of guy that, I mean, I know that in America we've got all the, I mean, there are lots of, of, of for those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, there's all the warning signs of things that could happen in the years to come or concerns that we have about the way we're going to be treated and all of that. This was a day and age when they walked out their door in the morning and if they said the things about Christ in the wrong way or the right way, they could be arrested and killed before sundown. And so when 
John is writing to them. He's saying, listen, you're doing a lot of good things. You're boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. You haven't wavered in your belief. You haven't gone and compromised with the community around you in order to stay okay and to stay safe. I I commend you for that. And he says, and I commend you for everything you're doing. Man, you're working all the time. You got all kinds of stuff going on in the community. I mean, you're great at works. You're great at discernment. You're great at enduring. And here's what I will tell you, all right? As I read this passage, one of the things that I thought about in my own life and our existence is that if Christ were to look at us as a church, if Christ were to say, all right, here, let me give you an assessment of your church. I mean, those are a couple of things I think he would say to us. Congratulations on. You're doing great. I mean, we are attempting to be biblically grounded in everything we do here at First Baptist. No matter if you are one year old or you are, we have a member, she's not able to come. We'll have a member that in less than a month turns 100. So no matter where you are in that age range, we are trying to be biblically accurate in what we're communicating. In Sunday school class, every Sunday school class that I know of is teaching biblically centered curriculum. And I told this in the first service, but those of, those of you that have kids know this. Those of you who have preschoolers know this. But downstairs right now, they are walking through the scriptures in a three-year cycle going from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Luke, my son, who um, is a third grader right now, by the time he gets out of children's ministry, will have been completely through the Bible twice. All the way through. Not piecemeal, not the here over here and here over here, but Genesis to Revelation in order, putting it all together. Our youth curriculum is consistently biblically minded. Addressing issues that they are concerned with on a biblical mindset. Our adult Sunday school classes are dealing with biblical content. We are trying, I try to be biblically correct in everything I do. I center our messages on the Bible content because I think that is the most important thing to teach about Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. So I think he would look at us and say, congratulations, you are not allowing yourselves to veer from the accuracy of the revelation that I've given you. Man, and this church works. This church works. Amen. I missed you in first service, Alex. I missed you. Alex is my amen buddy in the first service. Youth group yesterday was out with Mission 615 doing mission projects. I, I don't know if you know this either. It was cold yesterday. And they were delivering stuff to people working. I mean, every time I do this and I list missions that we're doing, ministries that we're doing, I always leave people out and I always feel terrible about it afterwards. So I'm not claiming to get all of these done. But, man, we, we have people working all the time and Meals on Wheels and Room at the Inn and um, Next Door Ministry downtown and um, Lynch, Kentucky and with the Goodlettsville Help Center and uh, people that are going, going to Los Angeles. Jeff and I are leaving for Los Angeles a week from tomorrow. Uh, because we've been invited by the North American Mission Board to help recruit people to do missions in Los Angeles because we've been out there and Robbie thinks that we're doing a good job. We bring good groups. They do good work out there and we want to be a part of that. And so we have our work in Brazil and our work in Chile and this church works. I, I joke sometimes with our, our guys that really work because we'll have events downstairs and we just have a work in church. And I remember looking at, we did a, a big meal afterwards one uh, Sunday, and I looked over, and people were pulling their plates up 
to finish eating because they were already cleaning up everything. I could was like, let people finish before we clean up. All right. But we joke about it. But it's just their work and they want to get it done. They got stuff to do. And I think if Christ looked at our church, he would say, man, I see your works. You're doing great. You ever been in a conversation with somebody when uh, they give you a couple of really good things about yourself and you feel like you're getting set up? Right. Like, man, you know, um, uh, I've noticed that you really try hard. You, man, you work really hard at stuff. And people really seem to like you. They, they're laughing when they're around you. But you stink at your job, right? Like you get kind of built up. And, oh, thanks. Oh, oh, right? That's what he does. You have not grown weary. Next verse. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love. You had it first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Now, there's lots of debate about what this means. There's some people out there that say what this means is that they didn't love each other like they were supposed to. And I guess that could be a part of it. But I know that throughout Scripture, whenever anything is talked about as first love or your love at first or the thing that is to have highest priority in your life, it is always centered on our relationship with Christ. And so my understanding is what he's saying is you look good. You've got all the stuff in place. You've got everything out there. You've got all these works in line. You're doing all the right stuff. You're saying all the right things. You're believing all the right things. But you have abandoned me in the process. You left your first love. You're superficial. You're hypocritical. And you're doing all the right things. But there's no foundation to what you're doing. So if Christ looked at us at First Baptist, goes, well, man, there are lots of good things going on, lots of exciting things happening. I think he would say to us, man, congratulations on those works. You're doing a great job with that stuff. Lots of good stuff you're doing. Man, I'm proud of you for the way that you're really, really sticking to the gospel, sticking to the biblical content. Man, I'm proud of you for the way you're doing that. Where's your heart? Where's your heart? Now, here's the question. How do you know when you've abandoned your first love? How do you know it? I can give you some ways that I think in my life I've noticed it, some ways that I've seen it, and then we're going to talk about how to return when you realize that. Because my guess is there are a lot of people in American churches that are going through the motions, even those of us that are steadfast and are still here and are not going to bow down to the culture. And yet, if you ask us about our personal relationship with the Lord, it is lacking in some way. And so here's some things that I've just noticed in my life, and it simply comes down to my priorities. My hopes, my dreams, where do I place those? What am I looking for? What do I look forward to? What do I dread? What are my thoughts about? What contemplates in my mind over and over? What am I contemplating? What am I thinking about? What am I dwelling on? Is it the thing of Christ or is it other things? How am I spending my money? How am I giving my time away? How am I scheduling my priorities? The, the simplest way for most people in my generation and the millennial generation to really see where your heart is when it comes to Christ is what priority do the things of God have on your schedule? My uh, Eli is playing uh, upward basketball this year um, and Maddie is cheerleading. We had upward basketball. I mean, if you remember for many years here at First Baptist and when we went through the remodeling of this, we just noticed there were tons of really good programs around. When we started, there were none. We were the only one in the area, and there are tons of good programs. 
And so uh, we, Eli wanted to play upward this year. Um, and so we went out to, to Beach Presbyterian and been playing upward out there. And, uh, you know, those of you that are familiar with the upward program, they always do a devotional for parents at halftime of the game. The other night they did the devotional I've heard and I've seen many, many times. It's one of those that gets passed about on uh, email chains and Facebook. And if you're a preacher and you get magazines with illustrations, it always seems to be in one of those about every year. And it's the illustration of a professor that took just a, a container. And he filled the container with rice and he had three tennis balls. And he said, I need you to get these three tennis balls into that container. And you can imagine, it's rice, it's compact, it's thing. You can't get them in, you can't squish it in. I mean, it's virtually impossible to get all three in there with the rice already packed in. And then he took the vase and he emptied it out of the rice. And he took the three tennis balls and he put the tennis balls in first. And then he poured the rice over the top. And the same amount of rice ended up filling it up. And he said, it all matters what you put in first. And there are a lot of us. That when it comes to the priorities of our schedule are trying to cram the tennis balls of our relationship with Jesus Christ into an already full container of rice. And it's not going to work. He looks at him and he says, I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Here's the interesting thing about these seven letters. Um, in Greek, the seven letters, the letters to each of the seven churches form what we call in Greek grammar, chiastic structure. And all of you said, what's that, right? Okay. So chiastic structure is the structure where the first and the last match, the second and the sixth match, the third and the fifth match, and the fourth is the pivot point. Okay. Chiastic comes from the Greek letter chi, which is, anybody know what letter that forms in our alphabet? The X. Okay. And so it's like there's a pivot point. And they match. Now, here's why that's interesting for this particular passage. And if you don't remember anything else, remember this. It means that the first letter and the last letter match. Now, who was the last letter written to? Anybody know? If you don't, you can, you know, like turn the page. Laodicea. All right. So it's another famous one. In fact, these are probably the two most famous letters, this one and the last one. And Laodicea, he says, uh, you're doing good things, but I have this against you. Do I remember what he has against Laodicea? You're neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. Now, we're not getting the whole debate of what hot and cold means there and all that. But just understand what I'm saying basically is the same exact thing. You've lost your passion for me. He goes on to say this. Remember, he gives them three ways to get back to where they were. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. That's just a straight out proclamation by Jesus Christ. If you don't shape up, I'm going to take the church out. Remove the lampstand means that he's, the lampstand is the church. I'm going to remove it. You won't be there. Not going to happen. I'll remove the lampstand from its place unless... You repent. Three things he says. If you find yourself in that place ever in your life where you have abandoned your first love, three things to do. And the first one is to simply remember. 
Remember where you came from. When I counsel uh, couples, premarital counseling, one of the things that I have them do after the first meeting is I have them write down their story of how God brought them together. If you're here today and you're married and you've never done that, I would advise you to go home and talk about it and write it down. This is how God brought us together. And then go put it in a drawer somewhere that you know where it is. Because there come moments in your marriage when you realize this person is not perfect. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord this morning? Amen, Alex. Uh, This person's not perfect. In fact, there are times when you will look at one another and go, what in the world did we do? Like, uh, this one, we were never supposed to do, I don't even know how we got together. It must have been a mistake. I'll tell those couples in that premarital, because, you know, you talk to premarital, in premarital counseling, they, I mean, they are in love. Like, there's nothing wrong. What, you, I want you to list three things you, uh, you dislike about your partner. I just can't even think of anything. <laughs> Give it time. Give it time. <laughs> right? Give it time. I get, not a single... I, I, honey, I love you so much. There's nothing. Well, we're about to delve into something, all right? So, but you have to remember, okay, even in the midst of that, I remember. What Paul's telling him is, Remember where you used to be, the heights from which you fall. Now, here's the really cool thing about the Ephesian church. We're about to do one of my one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. One of the really cool things about the Ephesian church is it's one of the only churches, perhaps the only church in Scripture, we see its birth, its growth, its warning, and eventually its destruction. We see the full lifespan. Paul enters into Ephesus and there are no believers. It takes him three years to build a church. And while he's there, he builds up this church. Now, Ephesians became a great church. We're going to look at one instance in just a second. But it became a great church. Can I tell you three of the pastors that pastored at Ephesus? Okay. See if you know these guys. Paul. You ever heard of him? Timothy. You ever heard of Timothy? And John, the Apostle John. Now, you cannot say those guys didn't have a good string of leadership, right? All right. I mean, I've been here eight and a half years, and I, I know this, this congregation. I know I love being a part of this congregation. I think congregation loves me, think, right? But if they got a call, hey, uh, the Apostle Paul would like to come pastor your church, I'd be kicked to the curb real quick. Like, well, I'm, you're going to do great. God's got a great plan for you. Uh, we just feel moved in a different direction, all right? Paul, Timothy, and John. So this is a great church. But look look at its beginnings even. So this is in Acts chapter 19. You don't have to turn there, but you can kind of just go back. I want you to just watch this story. And God was doing extraordinary miracles. Now, here's what I want to tell you. The word miracles doesn't need a qualifier. Right? Miracles means something outside of the natural way of life. Something extraordinary. So it's like he says God was doing extraordinary, extraordinary Extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, like this, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, this is where a lot of really bad television theology comes. All right. You have to understand this is a unique situation with Paul, but it doesn't lessen the fact that it happened with Paul. I mean, God is moving, and this is in Ephesus. I mean, people in Ephesus have seen things. Ephesus is one of the most important cities in all of ancient and the ancient world in that area. People would come there on a port. It was a, a place to get into Asia, and God was moving in mighty ways. In fact, He's moving in such mighty ways. People were trying to latch on to being a Christian even when they weren't Christians. Look what happens next. 
Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Now, that's just a fun job, isn't it? You walk around as a Jewish exorcist all day, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And there were seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva doing this. And so you got seven guys walking around saying, by the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, they're trying to get all their bases covered, whatever works. Look what the Spirit says to them. Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. Who are you? Now, listen. These guys are trying to capitalize on the name of Jesus without having a relationship with him. Because they were moving so powerfully in their area. It doesn't end well for them. Look what the next verse says. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, the seven of them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, and they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, I'm not a real expert on who wins and loses fights, but if you enter a fight with pants on and you leave without, (laughs) you lost, all right? That's all I know. You lost. That's going to be the only thing some of you remember from the whole sermon today right there. True, all right? Next verse. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them. And here's the key. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Here's what's happened. We're going to see some more in just a second. But notice this. This is the heights from which they were. A pagan town where nothing good was happening. And Paul couldn't find a single believer in Jesus Christ when he first got there. Is at the place now where the name of Jesus has struck fear at every person in the town. And the town has had a revival of the whole place. I remember the first time I ever went to Porto Segura, Brazil. Okay. It's where we go in Brazil, where our mission teams go. That when we went, it was one of the least churched places in all of Brazil. And I remember that we drove past on the on the strip to where, you know, we go to our go to our hotel that goes right next to the ocean. It it is like the where we go in Porto Segura is like the Panama City of um, of Brazil. Kids go there all the time for parties and stuff. If you're there in the middle of party season, they will literally party till you get up in the morning. And sometimes you can't go to sleep because you hear it all night long. Now, I remember with Gary, Gary uh, Taylor, who is our, the guy that's one of our leaders of the trip. And we were, I was riding next to Gary. I was riding next to Gary. And we were driving down that strip. And we were Porto Seguro. It was the first time I'd ever been to Porto Seguro. Gary had visited the first trip we had done. And he looked over at Toa Toa. That's, a, that's the big bar that's there. The big teen bar. Okay. He looked over and he said, I had a vision from the Lord. We're going to shut Toa Toa down. Now, as far as I know, it's still there. But I can tell you this, the influence of Christ in Puerto Seguro, Brazil, is infinitely more than it was 15 years ago. Well, here's what happened in Ephesus. They were getting shut down. Look what the next verse says. This is so crazy. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Confession time happens. And this is what they're confessing. Next verse. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 Pieces of silver. That's a lot of money in that day. 
And so people are they're they're like, we've got we are converting to Christianity. And it's not just that we're going to give a kind of a, a passive, aggressive. Yeah, Jesus is good. We'll follow him along with everything else. They are transforming their lives. They are giving up everything they know and they are bringing it to the center of town. And they're having burn parties to give glory and praise and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. It goes on. So the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. What John is saying to them is, you remember when Paul came to you? Remember that. Remember when you were a city that literally people couldn't claim to know Jesus because it was so evident and the lack of power they had. And those that followed Jesus were obviously in relationship with him. Remember from where you've fallen. Is there a time in your life when you look back and say, man, that was a time and I was on fire for the Lord. Man, I remember. It was a youth camp. Maybe it was a revival. Maybe it was just a moment when your first child was born and you rededicated your life or some tragedy happened in your life. You need to remember that moment. Write it down. That's why testimonies are so important, not just for witnessing, but for your own remembrance. You remember. And the second thing you do is you repent. You repent. Confess what's happening is what it says. People said that what was happening, they were divulging what was happening in their lives. And you change. It's a complete reversal. The phrase actually could be used to talk about the military term of about face. It's turning around completely. 180 degrees. Psalm 51, when David was caught in his sin, he says, I would bring a sacrifice. I'll give it, but that's not what you want. You're not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. You come before the Lord and you just say, this is who I am. And I want more of you. I don't want more of the stuff. I don't want more of the, um, the look. I don't want more of the activities. I want you. And then he tells them to return. Remember, repent, and return. And I think today he's calling us as First Baptist Church Goodlettsville to remember, to repent, and to return. I don't know where you are in your relationship with the Lord. Maybe for you that means the first time you've ever given your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. For the first time ever you're going to do that. Maybe for you it is, man, I remember a time when I was... I gave my heart to Christ or I remember a time when I was really on fire for the Lord. I was really living for Him. And I want to go back. And this morning, during our time of response, I'm just going to ask you, are you willing to remember? Are you willing to repent? Are you willing to return? Before we get into the mechanics of how we pray and worship, I just want to make sure our heart's right. I don't want to add other things to your schedule when your schedule needs to be completely transformed. I don't want to give you tips on how to live a more successful life when the Lord has a completely different direction for you. So this morning, my prayer is that you'll just return to your first love. Let's pray together.